to preach the gospel is to produce conflict. We see this truth displayed throughout the life and ministry of Jesus, but perhaps we see it most clearly when he has his encounter with who we call the rich young ruler. If you remember a rich young, and I would posit likely good-looking young man, uh, because it's hard to be rich and young and not good-looking, right? And so this rich young and likely good-looking young man comes to Jesus and asks, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus responds by saying, you know the commandments, and he rattles off a few knowing that rich will come right back and say, all these I have kept from my youth. What else do I have to do? It's at this point Jesus says to him, you lack one thing. Go, sell all that you have, give to the poor, and come, follow me. Then we read one of the saddest verses in all of Scripture in verse 22 of that chapter, chapter 10 in Mark. Disheartened by the saying, the young man went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. The man goes away sad because Jesus has exposed the truth about his heart and about his true God. The young man does religious activities, but his heart is set on his possessions and on himself. He's unable to obey that command of the gospel, which calls any who would come after Christ to deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow him. The reason he's unable to follow God is because he's not worshiping the one true God of Israel. He's not following the living God, but as we said a few weeks ago, a Stepford Wives kind of God. If you remember, we use the illustration of the Stepford Wives. What's going on there, the gist of the story or of the movie, is that there's a group of men who decide that their wives are really, really annoying. And so they come up with this plan to create a race of robot wives that will do whatever they want. I don't know why anybody would want to do this. And at first, it's awesome. But then, eventually, it becomes unfulfilling because they don't know an actual person but just a a projection of themselves, something imaginary. Stepford Wise kind of serves as a parable about how the rich young ruler and a lot of contemporary people like you and I treat God. We don't like the, the real God or what he requires of us, and so we reshape him into what we want him to be like. But ultimately, this is unfulfilling because it, it leaves us worshiping a projection of ourselves, a figment of our imagination. I wish that, that we would learn this truth, that the rich young ruler could have learned this truth, that if your God cannot contradict you, you're not worshiping God, but yourself. Ultimately, the gods of our imaginations leave us sad and separated from the God who rescues and gives life. Friends, when the true Christian gospel is preached to us, we, like the rich young ruler, are brought into conflict. We're told that living life our own way, following our hearts, and doing lots of good things cannot bring us into right relationship with God. We're told that we must step down from the throne of our lives and allow the king of kings to reign in our place. 
The gospel tells us that we need saving and that only Jesus can rescue us. The gospel of Jesus brings us into conflict by demanding that we follow him rather than ourselves. My hope is is that this morning as I preach this message to you, the message of Christ crucified, that you would be brought into conflict and that it would produce positive results within you. That it might result in your following of our good and mighty king. I hope that as we work through Romans chapter 3 verses 21 through 26, that's our text this morning, that you will see both the dark cloth of human sin and then against that backdrop, behold the glittering diamond of the gospel. My prayer is that you won't leave this place sad this morning, but that you will be as the man who finds the treasure in a field and then sells everything he has to buy it. I pray that you will see the supreme value of Jesus, that you would make him the apple of your eye, the love of your life, the treasure of your soul. Oh, I pray that you will see the frivolity of pursuing empty passions, of finding satisfaction in yourself and stuff, that you will see these imaginary gods of the world are impotent to deliver you. I pray that you would come and embrace the Lord Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. The text this morning, which I said is Romans 3, 21 through 26, is aimed at showing us how God vindicates himself and justifies his people by substituting himself for his people. And that's our main idea this morning. God vindicates himself and justifies his people by substituting himself for his people. In these verses, Paul is going to show us that the cross is the pillar that upholds the perfect love and justice of God. And that because of the cross, we, unworthy and evil people, can receive the gift of Christ's righteousness. Outline will go a little bit like this. We're going to talk about bad news and good news, and I'm going to give you the bad news first before going on to the good news. And then um, we're going to get into the text, so I'm going to pray first. Dear Heavenly Father, we thank you for this time we have to come together and celebrate your resurrection the good news that man can be made right with you. We ask that you would bring us under the interrogation of the text this morning and that we would allow the Holy Spirit to lay bare the thoughts and attitudes of our hearts. We ask that for those of us who who know you, that you would give us a fresh sense of your glory, that you would make us awestruck once more at the grace that you have lavished upon us. For those that are here and they don't know where they stand with you, maybe dabbled in Christianity a little bit, those that don't know you at all, I pray that you would crack open their dead hearts this morning and give to them the breath of life that comes only through faith in your Son, Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. So to this point in the letter of Romans, Paul has been building a careful and sustained argument about mankind's position before God. And so initially in chapter 1, after a really long introduction, he gives us what is his thesis statement. He says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. 
to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith, for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Then he proceeds to argue about why we need the righteousness of God and how we receive it. And so in the first few chapters, he's arguing about our position before God, which is fallen. It's, it's really, it's bad news. And he sums up this. He, he argues us into his conclusion in verses 19 and 20 of chapter 3. This is what he says. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be silenced and the whole world held accountable to God. Therefore, no one will be declared righteous in his sight by observing the law. Rather, through the law, we become conscious of sin. And so it's at that point in the letter we're led to ask this question. If we are utterly sinful, if we are lost, if we can't rescue ourselves, as Paul has argued, how then can men and women be made righteous with God? Before we get to answering that question, though, I want to I spend a little bit more time on the bad news which Paul sums up here in 3.23. That, part, that verse falls within our text this morning. Paul writes this, For all have sinned and fallen short of or lack the glory of God. That's the bad news. Our relationship with God is broken because we have rebelled against his rule by following our hearts instead of listening to his voice. This is, this is called sin. Sin is serving ourselves or anything else above God. Paul explains it in chapter 1 as exchanging or trading the glory of God for created things. And in the end, all sin is, is rooted in this, worshiping God's gifts in God's place. And so if you want to think about it, an illustration, you can think about it like our solar system, right? If you've got the sun at the center of our solar system, it holds all the planets in orbit around itself, and everything works. But if you move the sun to the periphery of the solar system, say out there where like Neptune or the planet formerly known as Pluto, where those are, if you take the sun and put it out there, everything would be destroyed. Everything would fall apart. Likewise, when we sin, we're simply putting something else in the place that is only to be occupied by God. And as a consequence, our world is in disarray. It's really just mirroring the sickness and the darkness that exists within our own hearts. I think if we're honest with ourselves, none of us thinks that we are perfect. And so we fit nicely into that category of sinner described by Paul in the preceding chapters. He, he says we are guilty of judgmentalism and hypocrisy, faithlessness, unrighteousness. He says that we've all rejected God in favor of our own agenda. Indeed, this is the testimony of the whole of Scripture. It warns us that we have rejected God with our hands and our hearts by what we do and what we love. Eugene Peterson put it this way. We've proved that we are utterly incapable of living the glorious lives that God wills for us. There, there's something within us that resents being told what to do. I mean, you know this is true. If somebody tells you not to touch the red button, what's the first thing you want to do? Right, you want to touch the red button. I mean, I've seen ads in magazines. They have a little envelope and just the word written across it, no. And you're like, i got to open this envelope right now. got to know what's inside. I think another example is nobody has to teach your kids how to rebel, right? It comes quite naturally and quite quickly, I learned. I think because naturally there's something within us that resents being told what to do. 
We are like unruly toddlers as we rebel against our God. We are sinners. This is a primary and foundational teaching of Christianity. Christianity teaches that people are not generally good and in need of some positive reinforcement. No, no, no. Christianity teaches that we are entirely bad and in need of a rescue. That the image of God that is imprinted upon each and every human being has been marred by sin. And that the only one who can restore it is Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that we, wretched sinners, stand before God's unfathomable holiness with utter need. That we have a depravity of such totality that God would be completely justified in pouring out an eternity of wrath upon us. In fact, his character and his justice demand it. Our sins warrant hell because what is at stake in sinning is the glory of God. What's at stake in your sinning is the glory of God. God's glory is a big deal. It's the reason the universe exists. The the entire cosmos exists as a theater for which God's glory is to be displayed. When we sin, we sin against God and despise his glory. I think King David helps us to understand a little bit. In 2 Samuel 12, he is confronted by the prophet Nathan for committing adultery with Bathsheba and then having her husband killed. Nathan says to to David, Why have you despised the word of the Lord? We could imagine David saying at that point, what do, what do you mean despised you? I didn't, I didn't despise you, God. I wasn't even thinking about you. I saw this girl bathing on the roof. I was just hot after her. You know, then uh, you know, I killed her husband and I was trying to cover that up. I wasn't thinking about you at all. You weren't even in the picture. No one can imagine God re- replying, I, the creator of the universe, the designer of marriage, the fountain of life, the one who holds you into being, the one who made you king, that one, I, the Lord, was not even in the picture? That's right, David. That's exactly what I mean. You have despised me. See, all sin is a despising of God before it is a damage to man. David feels the rebuke of Nathan. And he responds, I have sinned against the Lord. To which Nathan responds, The Lord has also put away your sin. You shall not die. I mean, just just like that, adultery and murder are passed over. Our sense of justice ought scream out, No! You can't just let it go like that. David deserves to die. He deserves punishment of some type. You can't just sweep it under the rug. You you shall not die. What about justice? You can imagine being Bathsheba's father. The man who raped your daughter and killed your son-in-law simply has his sin passed away. That's not justice. That's a problem. David deserves the eternal wrath of God. You see, hell 
is the punishment that accords with the glory despised. God is eternal and endlessly important. Thus, to sin against him earns death and endless punishment. Hell is the punishment that fits the crime of reviling the glory of God. To not punish our sin would be to belittle the worth of God and to make it appear as if his glory were of tertiary or minor value. Not that important. Think of it this way. Uh, suppose a group of anarchists plot to assassinate President Obama and his cabinet. And they almost succeed. Their bombs destroy part of the White House and, and kill some staff, but the president narrowly escapes. The anarchists are then caught and the courts find them guilty. But then the anarchists say they're really, really sorry. And so the court suspends their sentences and releases them. What that would communicate to the world is that the president's life and his governance of the nation are cheap. It's what the passing over of sin communicates about God. If he simply passes over and doesn't deal with it, it communicates that his glory and his righteousness and his governance are, are cheap and of minor value. And so we are led to ask the question that Paul answers in our text. How can God pass over sins and still be just? I'm going to read the whole section to you. I want you to pay special attention at this point to verse 25. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance he passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. So how is it that God can pass over sins and not compromise his glory? How can he justify justifying sinners like you and I and David? It really is quite the conundrum, right? If God forgives sin by becoming indifferent to it, if the only way he can justify his people is, is giving up his role as judge, then, then it would hardly be loving to the victims of sin. It would give no assurance of the future, and it would make God deeply flawed and deeply compromised within his own character. No, God must, should, and will judge sin. He should, must, and will judge us. So how does he, how does he do that? How does he judge us and rescue us at the same time. This is the scandal and the wonder of the gospel. God judged us, those that have united ourselves with Christ by faith. He judged us in the person of his own son. That's the scandal. That's the wonder. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, 
whom God put forward as a propitiation by His blood to be received by faith. Jesus is our substitute. When He died on the cross, He did so condemned by God for our sins. This sacrifice of atonement is translated propitiation. And this is a $10 word, right? Propitiation. I was going to see Batman and Superman the other day. It came up and the guys looked and said, what is propitiation? What does that mean? It actually is a form of a word that was used for the cover of the Ark of the Covenant, which was where God's wrath towards Israel would be propitiated or satisfied by the sprinkling of the blood of the Lamb. You see, the point here is that Christ's death removed the penalty of our sin by removing the wrath of God. He removes the wrath of God from us by satisfying it in our place. He removes the wrath of God from us by absorbing it himself. Jesus takes hell so that we can have heaven. That's the gospel. God the Son took on flesh, lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and rose from the dead to prove his person and his power. The resurrection part is is really key here. The fact that Jesus of Nazareth rose from the dead has turned many an atheist and an agnostic into a Christian theist. It is the center of the web of Christian thought. If Christ has not risen, Paul says, we who follow him are to be pitied. I mean, you have to understand that when Paul uh, says God's wrath is satisfied by Jesus' blood, because I know some of you are thinking, he hasn't said anything about the resurrection right in the text we're looking at. But, but when Paul's using this word blood to say that God's wrath has been satisfied, he doesn't mean that Jesus could have got like a paper cut and, and poured it out and that would have taken care of the sin of the world. What he's doing here is he's using a type of theological shorthand. It's, kind of, it's a synecdoche or a, a catch-all term for the entire life of Christ. So he's, he's using it elsewhere. You'll see uh, Paul will say, we preach Christ crucified. And, and what he means is we're preaching the entire gospel. Or he used the words cross. He'll, he'll use the word cross in his ministry. And so what he's saying is, is he wants us, when he uses the word blood, to conceive of the entirety of Jesus' life from his incarnation to his ascension. Paul is saying that Jesus' death satisfied completely the wrath of God and that the resurrection of Jesus validates that assertion. You see, for Jesus to remain in a state of death would have been to remain under God's penalty for sins. The wages of sin is death. And that would have left us unjustified. Uh, Charles Spurgeon summarized it this way, The dying Christ has purchased for us our justification, but the risen Christ will see that we get it. The risen Christ has come to bring it to us, and herein we rest. The resurrection was God's public vindication of Christ and his claims, his public acceptance of the sacrifice. Jesus propitiates or satisfies the wrath of God towards those who trust in him. So when you believe in Jesus, you become united to him by faith, and this great exchange takes place. All your sin is credited to his account, and all of his righteousness is credited to your account. His death becomes your death, so that Paul's words in Galatians become true of you. I have been crucified with Christ. 
It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. In the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. If you have faith in Jesus, your sin has been punished. You were crucified with Christ. God's wrath against you has been exhausted. His righteousness becomes your righteousness. 2 Corinthians 5.21 For our sake, he that knew no sin became sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We get declared righteous. His goodness gets credited to our account. I mean, the cross is how God ends evil without ending us. All sin has been or will be dealt with. See, all sin has been dealt with on the cross of Christ in the past, or it will be dealt with in the future upon his return. This is how God is both just and justifier. This time in between his first and second coming is simply God's kindness to us so that many might come and take shelter beneath the blood of Christ and be saved. The cross was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Jesus' death also shows us that God's glory is not cheap. It shows us that God's glory and his righteous governance are not worthless or of minor value. His death shows us that God's glory is infinitely valuable because Jesus is God. He's infinite in his person. That means he can die for an infinite amount of sins. That's what qualifies him to save us. Only the God-man can stand between God and man and broker a peace. The cross shows us of his infinite glory, that his glory is infinitely valuable, and it shows us that we are infinitely valuable to him. The cross shows us the heights of God's love for his people by showing us the depths to which he was willing to go in order to save us. At the cross, God vindicates himself and justifies his people by substituting himself for his people. So we see that when God puts away the sins of David and others, he wasn't flippantly sweeping them under the rug. He was waiting to punish them along with the future sins of all of his people on the cross. In other words, God in his patience had deferred payment on those sins committed by his people prior to the coming of his son The sacrifices and the rituals of the Old Testament were only and always placeholders pointing to Jesus. They didn't really pay debts, but anticipated the coming of the ultimate debt payer. God was accepting Abraham and Moses and David and all the Old Testament saints when they repented and trusted in his mercy on the basis of Jesus' future work. He's always been a just God who justifies his people by substituting himself for his people. All the Hebrew scriptures, the law, and the prophets bear witness to this truth, that God is righteous and he rescues his people. I think really this is the point of verse 21, that the Old Testament prophesied the salvation that is made known in the New Testament. The law, like the sacrificial system, served to reveal the character of God and make our need for a rescuer evident. And we are rescued by the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. 
For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. I love how Tim Keller talks about the word righteousness here. This is what he says when, you know, righteousness is kind of a big word. Like, how do we think about that? What does it mean? And this is how he describes it. He says, righteousness is a validating performance record which opens doors. So like when you want a job, you get a resume and you write it up, you make it look really nice and you put all of your experience and skills, all the things you think that you hope that qualify you for the job. All your clubs in there, if you're in high school, applying to like a college. You send it and, and what you're saying with your resume is, look at this, look at what I've done. I'm right for the position. Accept me. You see, th- this is how every religion and culture believes it is with God, right? That it's not, it's not a vocational record, but a moral and spiritual one. If your record is good enough, if you're really a, a good person, then you're worthy of life with God, and you're accepted. Usually how this goes when, when people, I've talked with people, I'm like, well, how do you know how good good enough is? And they're like, well, I'm, I'm better than this guy. They find somebody else that's worse than them to point to. Well, how do you know how good good enough is? Does everybody just have to be uh, a better person than Hitler was in general? Like, how do you know? Where's the the standard? This is where the gospel diverts. See, the gospel says that we cannot earn heaven on our own, that there's no such thing as, as, as generally good people, but people who are in need of grace. The gospel says that God has developed a perfect righteousness and that he offers it to us and it, by, by it alone are we accepted. I mean, this is a unique thing in Christian thought. This is the uniqueness of the Christian gospel. It, it reverses what every other religion and worldview and, and every human heart believes. This is why no amount of do-goodness can earn us peace and acceptance before God. He requires perfection. And we can only get perfection through a relationship with Jesus Christ. This is why the rich young ruler was doomed from the start. His question was fundamentally flawed, but I think it reflects how we naturally come to God, right? Saying things like, what must I do to inherit eternal life? How can I earn heaven? The answer is, he can't. You can't. You can merely receive it by faith. Those who inherit the kingdom of heaven are the lowly, Those who come to God with empty hands begging his mercy. Jesus cannot be your help until you realize that you are helpless. There's a a story uh, in in, in all the Gospels, I think it shows up, at least in Mark and Matthew it's there, of a Gentile or Syrophoenician woman. And she comes to Jesus and she asks him to cast out a demon from her daughter. And Jesus actually replies to her with what would have been a racist remark at the time. He says, he says, why should I give the bread that is for the children of Israel? I've come to save Israel. Why should I take that which is due to the children and give it to the dogs? You're really insulting. And she says, but do not even the dogs eat the crumbs from the master's table. And Jesus says, this is it! This is what I've been preaching This is utter dependence. This is lowliness. 
come to me with nothing and beg of my mercy. This is how you will be justified. It is by faith in Christ alone that we are saved. Don't, don't get it twisted either, right? Faith is not a work. It's not something that you conjure up within yourself. Faith is simply an attitude of coming to God with empty hands. Right? When a child asks his mother for something he needs, trusting that she will give it, his asking doesn't merit anything. It's merely the way that he receives his mother's generosity. Likewise, when we come to Christ in faith, we come as children asking for what we need, trusting that he will give it. We are merely receiving his generosity, saving faith. Righteousness receiving faith has only one object, and it's Jesus. This is important because it's not the amount of our faith that saves us, but the object of our faith. Tracking with me? What I mean by that, uh, so for example, I might have an unshakable faith in the ability of feathers strapped to my arms to fly me from here to the UK, right? I might really believe I can do that, but no matter how hard I flap, the object of my faith, the feathers on my arms, are not able to deliver on that promise. It's just not going to work out. Equally, I may have just barely enough faith to board a transatlantic flight. I might even tremble a little bit as I get on the plane. And yet the object of my faith will accomplish its purpose. It will accomplish what it promises. I'll end up in the UK, barring anything crazy happening. It's not the faith that saves, not the amount of faith that saves. It's the object of your faith. And the only object that is able to save is Jesus Christ. He's the only one. I think this is crucial for us to understand because if you come to think of your belief as the cause of your salvation, what will happen is you'll stop looking to Christ and you'll start looking to your faith. Say, if I just, could just believe a little bit more, things would be okay. And then when you see doubts and, and things like that, you'll be rattled. You, know, you don't feel quite as excited about coming to church or, or studying the scriptures. You'll be worried. And what's happened in that moment is you've made your faith the, the basis of your salvation rather than the work of Christ. You've turned your faith into a work. Don't do that, friends. It's paramount that we believe what God has said about us and about our position in Christ and before him rather than our own feelings. Feelings are fickle and they change just like the winds. We must always trust the object of our faith instead of deifying it. Justification, righteousness by faith in Christ's work alone is the hinge upon which the whole of Christianity turns. It's the article upon which everything stands or falls. It is the atlas upon which Christianity rests so that if atlas were to shrug, the entire structure of the Christian faith would fall to the ground and shatter. That's the atlas of Greek mythology, y'all. Not the roadmap, just to be clear. He's the one that holds up the world. We must never forget that you're accepted by Jesus' work, that we are accepted by Jesus' work and not our own. It means we can get off this performance treadmill. We can stop trying to prove ourselves worthy. Stop trying to pad our resumes, if you will. Because God has already accepted us on the basis of Jesus' resume, which is ours by faith. Brothers and sisters, do you climb up the church steps every Sunday burdened with guilt? 
As if there's something you need to do on Sunday morning in order for God to once more be sufficiently pleased with you. Don't allow that to go on for another week. It's not the gospel. It's not the good news of Jesus Christ. Do you feel there's something you still need to do to gain God's favor? There isn't. He sings over you, Zephaniah tells us. He delights in you because you've had faith in the Son. Christ has earned God's favor for you. Christianity is always a religion of done rather than do. And our good works must come in response, in loving response to the glorious work of Jesus, not in an effort to earn his affection. Uh, I think our attitudes ought to be that of the rebellious but repentant prodigal son rather than the unrepentant and religious prodigal son. I'm sure you all are pretty familiar with the story, but allow me to give you a truncated version of it here. There are two sons, uh, one rebellious, one religious. Neither really wants the father. They both just kind of want his stuff. They're going about getting his stuff in different ways. The rebellious son says, let me just have my inheritance right now. And then he goes and squanders it by whoring and drinking and all those fun things. And he ends up with pigs in the mud and he's feeding them. And he realizes, my father's servants eat better than this. I'll just return and ask him if I can be a servant in his house. Meanwhile, the way the religious son wants to get the father's stuff is by keeping all the rules I'm going to keep all these rules and eventually daddy's going to give me what I've earned. But one day, the rebellious son begins to walk over the horizon, having rehearsed his story many times. Imagine repeating to himself, Father, I've sinned against heaven and before you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Allow me to be a servant in in your house. But before the words can even stop falling off his lips, the, the father catches a glimpse of him. And he does what Middle Eastern men don't do in that time because it would have been shame. He runs to his son. The son begins to to say this line that he's recited many times. And it's as if the father doesn't hear it. He, He says, if you remember, bring quickly the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his hand and shoes on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let us eat and celebrate. For this, my son was dead and is alive. He was lost and he is found. What a wonderful picture of reconciliation. All the while, the religious son, who had the same sin within his heart, remains outside of the celebration. There's a whole lot more to that parable. We don't have time to go into it right now. But but the primary point is, both want the father's stuff and not the father. But the rebellious son realizes by his unrighteousness that he needs the father. The religious son still thinks that his works are enough to save him. I pray that's not you this morning. They're not. Only Jesus works. This is, though, a wonderful picture of reconciliation when the rebellious son comes in and the father welcomes him into the home and they have this huge celebration. Do you think that the next day when the father turns to the rebellious son and says, hey man, could you take out the trash? Do you think that for one millisecond That rebellious son thought, taking out this trash is going to earn my father's favor. Going to make me acceptable before him again. Not a chance! No, he's going to take out the trash because he knows that he's fully loved, fully accepted by the father. He's fully included in the family beyond a shadow of a doubt. He doesn't have to earn the father's affection. He already has it. 
So when he obeys the commands of the Father, he does so in order to demonstrate his love for the Father. That's why Jesus says, if you love me, then you will obey my commandments. And so likewise, when we come to church, when we meet together during the week over meals, when we are encouraging one another, when we are on missions, when we do things that are part and parcel to the Christian life, it's not out of obligation in order to earn our salvation, but it's out of affection as a consequence of already having the love and acceptance of the Father. We have been adopted into the family of God solely because of God's gracious kindness to us. He said to us, come, I've put a robe on your back. I'm putting the ring of Christ on your finger. You are my son who was lost and who is now found. Let us celebrate. This is what happens when you come to Christ like the Syrophoenician woman and say, save me, help me. Look at verse 24 again. It says, We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. This word redemption is an awesome one. It connotes buying and selling. So you can think of it like a pawn shop a little bit. Uh, sometimes if you are in a hard place, you take something of yours and you go to a pawn shop and they give you a little bit of money for that, like a loan. And if you pay the money back in the determined period of time, you redeem your item. They give that item back to you. If you don't pay the loan back, well, it becomes their merchandise, and it's not a good deal. But that's kind of a picture of redemption. The, the Bibles, though, is a little bit more intense than that, though. Typically, in the Bible, it refers to slavery. See, in the Old Testament, Israel is an agricultural society, and it doesn't take much to get into debt. And how you dealt with debt at that point in time was to sell yourself into slavery. It wasn't like American slavery, um, but it wasn't much better either, right? <laughs> slavery is never a good thing. And so you would be stuck there. You could buy your way out, but you would be stuck there for a really long time. What, what God does in his law is he makes provision for a, what's called a kinsman redeemer or a goel as a person in your family who would come and buy you out of the debt and out of that slavery so that you could live free again. When Paul is employing this word redemption here, he is intentionally pointing us to that fact that this is people being bought out of slavery. I think he's also reaching back into the Exodus, into the blood of the Passover lamb by which the Lord liberated Israel from Egypt. His wrath is satisfied by the blood of a firstborn. Consequence of it is the freedom of his people. And I think the Exodus likewise points us forward to the greatest redemption there ever was. The redemption that Jesus won for his people through his blood. Jesus is the ultimate kinsman redeemer. He is the go well who buys us all out of slavery at the cost of his own life. I wonder this morning, have you received his grace? Have you been redeemed? If not, you can be declared righteous this morning by putting your faith in Jesus Christ who is crucified, dead, and buried for the sins of all who place their faith in him and who rose on the third day. Indeed, brothers and sisters, he is risen. Jesus' resurrection means that we all must grapple with his message. It means that the conflict the gospel produces within us is a real one and of eternal importance. Will you follow Jesus today? Or will you go away sad 
because your heart is set upon lesser things. My prayer is that you won't go away sad, but that you will be as the man who discovers a treasure in a field and sells everything to buy it. I pray that you have seen the supreme value of Jesus, that you will make him the apple of your eye, the love of your life, the treasure of your soul. I pray that you will come to Jesus as the old hymn invites. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick and sore. Jesus ready stands to save you, full of pity, love, and power. Come ye weary, heavy laden, lost and ruined by the fall. If you tarry till you're better, you will never come at all. Let not conscience make you linger, nor of fitness fondly dream. All the fitness he requireth is to feel your need of him. I pray, friend, that you would arise and come to Jesus so that he can embrace you in his arms. In the arms of our dear Savior, there are 10,000 delights. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the truth that we are more wicked than we ever dared believe, and in Christ, more loved and accepted than we ever dared hope. My prayer this morning is that those of us who have walked with you many years, or even just for a very short while, will once more again be caught up in a sense of wonder at your mercy and at your glory, that you would stop our breath and our lungs as we stand amazed at what you've done for us in the gospel. I pray for those who are here whom your Holy Spirit is shaping and pushing and nudging towards a life of faith and of salvation. Pray that you would continue to knead the gospel into their hearts at this time and throughout the week, that they wouldn't be able to sleep without thought of what this news means for them. Lord, we thank you that you have secured for us heaven, eternal life together and with you by your rising from the dead after satisfying your own wrath towards us. Thank you for living the life we should have lived, dying the death we should have died, and raising to life victorious over the grave, allowing us to share in that victory. Hallelujah, we pray. And in Jesus' name, amen.